sudden mm, Mexican head explosion out of mine. <laughs> had to suck. Excuse my uh, sucking on the podcast. Mm. God, that's good. Ooh. You like that? It's almost like a sour lager or something. Yeah, that one's kind of interesting because it's totally different. It, it's because it's got like a lime kind of thing. Introduce your beer before you talk about it, Chris. All right, so that would be a. <clears throat> By the way, welcome to Drink to the Past, the podcast we the- where we forget what we're doing and drink beer halfway. Th- I'm not even halfway through the but like literally the first thing we did was forget what we were doing and drink beer. <laughs> See what is that? Los Locos Lager? Yeah, Los Locos, which is... There's like these Hawaiian shirts, cozies on them. Yeah, I I put a... I gave Chris a koozie because I have lots of koozies, and I found them, and I was like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, this is from Epic Brewing Company. Uh, They make a lot of good stuff. So this is... uh, That's a Mexican lager, and it's uh, also got like sea salt and lime in there, which is an interesting kind of a couple of things to stick in a thing. And it, I think it makes for a much more interesting than your average Mexican lager Mexican it, lager. It's, it's definitely interesting. Uh, I, I don't know how I feel about it yet. So yeah, I guess I'll That's wait fair. until I'm done with it to rate it. Yeah, it's kind of a different one. Uh, certainly different than what I usually have on hand. But uh, now that beer is in the grocery store, beer is occasionally on markdown in the grocery I'm, store. I'm definitely warming up to it. It's uh, mm-hmm. like... Tastes like a lager, but it's got just enough sour in it yeah. to make it interesting. And I got Denver Beer Company's Graham Cracker Porter, which is fucking great. Yeah. Yeah, you've had this. Needs no introduction. Yeah. The beer that needs no introduction, introduce your beer. I introduced it already. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> mmm. I am really feeling this right now, too. Oh, man. It's been a while since I had a good porter. Um, I didn't really have many porters at... The Great American Beer Festival last week, I feel like. It's kind of weird. That is strange. There wasn't a whole lot there. There was a... I had a pretty good number of stouts. Um, a lot of barrel-aged stuff. And I, uh, I had one interesting one that actually was also a Mexican-inspired. It was a tequila barrel-aged Mexican lager called Adios Pantalones from Rar and Sons Brewing Company. That was interesting because it... Uh, really picks up a lot of the agave kind of flavors from the tequila barrel. And somehow it almost tasted like they had made some sort of tequila that you could literally just, like, sit there and drink. Like a sessionable tequila is what it tasted like. It was, it was weird and kind of awesome. Huh. Um, yeah, definitely probably the best agave featuring beer I've ever had. Agave is not a very popular beer ingredient, though, so that's a very limited margin. The only other thing I can think of offhand is the agave wheat beer from Breckenridge Brewery, I think. Uh, And that's not bad, but it's certainly, like, nowhere near the amount of... They kind of basically use agave as a sweetener in that beer. Would you say that you drink more lactose beers than, than agave beers? Yeah, because uh, recently lactose has been a vaguely, it's it's maybe a little bit of a gimmick, but it's been used in a fair amount of beers popularly. Uh, so I don't know if it's just a fad right now with brewers and it it might catch on and it might just kind of die after a while. But uh, some of those have been really good, like that uh, Mango Babe, uh, if you remember that from yeah, several I, weeks ago. That was exactly really the beer I was thinking of. Yeah. 
So, uh, shout out to Odd13 again. They make good stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, because uh, I, I feel like right leading up to that one, that was the last one I had, actually, that I know had uh, lactose in it. It's occasionally used in milk stouts anyways, so it's not like it was a unheard of thing before recently, but I feel like recently it's become more popular. I had another mango milkshake beer at Beer Fest also that was pretty good. I forget where it was from now, but I thought, hey, look, it's got mango and lactose. I'll see if it compares. And it was uh, different. Hmm. I don't remember if it was as good. I remember being like, yep, tastes like a mango shake. Pretty good. So, huh. Whoever that was, shout out to you. Uh, you know, you were one of the 5,000 beers there. Fruit and lactose, apparently a popular combination. Yeah, I guess it works. <laughs> you know, if beer tastes like milkshakes, I feel like people will buy it. There's a market for that. Maybe we should introduce ourselves. I said we were drink to the past. It's kind of like introducing ourselves. My name is Sean Michael Patrick Thompson. And I'm Chris, sometimes has a last name on it. One time you had a last name. Yeah. Yeah. Comes and goes. Anyways, we are drink to the past. Uh, we have forgotten most of what we were doing and drunk beer, but we've already been over that. So don't forget to share and subscribe if you want to, you know, tell all your friends about two idiots that drink beer and forget what they're talking about all the time. Please do that. Yeah. Then we'll have more than 26 subscribers. Yeah. Uh, Sean drinks something stupid. I put on the back burner because I had a hard time putting my kids to bed today. So I will drink something stupid next week. This week, I'm drinking a beer. Uh, brief news stuff. Um, PS5 is announced for holiday 2020. You gonna get a PS5? Probably not right away. Yeah. I, I, I think this PS4... I thought the PS4 was still doing pretty well. It I is. I still haven't gotten one of those, so... Yeah, uh, PS4 is doing pretty well, and I feel like right now wouldn't be a terrible time to get a PS4... But if you are going to wait on a PS4, you almost might as well wait to PS5 because it's, you know, backwards compatible and shit. Yeah. And that's like a huge selling point of the PS5 right there is that it's backwards compatible not just to PS4 but to all of the PlayStations. That, that's a fuckload of games. I wonder if that... Yeah, I, I wonder how they're doing that. Technically, that's actually decently impressive, so... Yeah, um, so... I'm excited at least just by that. And uh, other than that, yeah, PlayStation has been doing pretty good, and they get a lot of good stuff, and I love my PS4. So yep. uh, I might get a PS5. Probably won't at launch, because I don't imagine myself being able to shell out for a 4K TV and a PS4 or a PS5, you know, within the next year. Like, maybe I can, but I feel like... That's pretty expensive. Yeah, yeah I feel like it wouldn't be as worth upgrading unless I had a 4K TV to go with it. Yeah, because what would be the launch titles? I also don't know any launch titles specifically. Uh, That's kind of the tough thing about console releases is I feel like generally the smart play is to wait until the price drops a bit and they've got like two or three years worth of games out for them. Yeah, because once you got a big backlog... Like, actually, this kind of the first time I've ever done that is with my PS4, and right when I got my PS4, I'm like, oh, look, I could get this game and this game and this game. And I still haven't, you know, even played all of the games that I've got, and I've got, 
you know, but a lot of the big ones that everybody praises for this generation of gaming, uh, God of War, Horizon Zero Dawn are up there. The Shadow of the Colossus remake I got. I haven't even played that. Um, I got um, Rage 2 is really good. Y you know, I, I, I just suddenly had, like, a small collection of, you know, good games that I could get mostly for pretty cheap. Because, uh, you know, I got some of them used. I got some of them with, like, a PlayStation gift card I got for Christmas. I got, like, four games with it for, like, 25 bucks. because PlayStation Store does, like, sales. Which, being a Nintendo fan, was like, what? Games go on sale? That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Because being a Nintendo guy, it's pretty much, yep, it's going to be 60 bucks forever. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway... <laughs> We'll get into that a little more later. Dun-dun-dun, yeah. foreshadowing. Dun-dun. Yeah, something like that. And uh, Chris has decided not to cover Blizzard anymore. So, Chris, go into detail about just what shit's going down at Blizzard HQ. And this is political, so I'll just do it pretty briefly, is that they uh, decided to ban one of their Hong Kong players... Blitzchung for speaking out in support of Hong Kong and take away his prize money. And this is... Free speech is something that should be defended not just by a government, but when you're at the power level, have the power of a corporation behind you and you can ruin lives with what you do, then that should be protected as well. So... Yeah, it seems kind of weird that... Uh a company would, you know, take away prize money for somebody who for spoke. Yeah, and yeah. it's there's not a legitimate reason to withhold prize money, is it? Yeah, generally speaking, no. Sometimes I'm like, and there's there's degrees of exceptions, I guess. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I think when you're doing this when you're saying you can't speak out about this thing that's happening to you uh, or else we're going to take away your livelihood that's pretty fucking evil mm -hmm. yeah it's uh, it's a weird situation that I, I read a little bit about on Twitter but I didn't really get the whole gist of it so I kind of would like to know more context, but at the same time, it really just doesn't make any sense that anybody would ever be punished for speaking their mind. I'm like, and again, there's exceptions. I'm like, yeah. I imagine if someone come out and said like some pro, pro Nazi shit, they'd probably get banned, and we wouldn't care. Right? Maybe. I'm generally, I'm generally of the. I understand that there's, like, reasonable things that a company can say, don't do this, but this is so far not one of them. Yeah. Seems weird to me. So, is there anything else we want to say about that? No, I want to I wanna say... Okay. Goodbye, That's... Blizzard. R.I.P. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's all the news. There was there was not much news this week. Um, there was some other, like, something about the PS5 controller reveal, which 
like uh, I'm pretty sure it's PlayStation. It looks the same. It does the same stuff. Uh, I guess there's something about the way its triggers work that people were talking about, and I'm like, whatever. They're triggers. I honestly, like, going back to physical triggers after a while of playing my Switch, uh, when I got my PS4, it's like it's got physical triggers again. And I'm like, I, I just don't care. Oh. Because there's, like, two games that ever used physical triggers to any meaningful extent, and they were both racing games. Yeah, that's... I, I mean, I kind of like the way they feel, but it's not really... Yeah, I mean, it, I, I like the it, way It's they like feel Rumble. It's, yeah. It's like... It's yeah. a pretty... It's it's something that's nice to have, but it's a pretty minor detail overall. Yeah. But, again, you can... They can also replicate the feel to some extent just by making the physical trigger have, like, a, you know, a little bit of... A, a bit more play, a bit more motion yeah. between its two positions because that's basically what they did with the GameCube controllers for uh, Smash Bros because it's it's still just a digital input it's just a USB GameCube controller with a you know a, a digital input instead of a physical you shouldn't really buy mechanism. like a bunch of those before you know Nintendo stops making them forever like they do yeah. Man, they're great at with, this, art, with, this scarcity with, thing. This artificial scarcity thing. They are, to an extent. And some of it, I think, is that that, that could be our topic for another time. Because uh, <laughs> some of it, I believe, is like legitimately they just make too many fucking products and they can't keep them all at once. Uh, but sometimes I really wonder what the shit they were thinking. Like with my Master Edition Breath of the Wild that I never got because they were dicks. Uh, that, that was a dick move. Uh, I cannot justify that in any way. Uh, and maybe that's just because I'm salty about it. We're not even in a post-scarcity economy right yet. What are you doing having artificial scarcity, Nintendo? Mm-hmm. What the hell? Yeah. But anyways... I'm not, uh, I'm not actually angry about this. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm not usually angry about it, but I really, really was and still am a little bit about my fucking Master Edition. Yeah, no, I, that, I'm with you there. That one particular thing. I was like, yeah. come on, man. Because I'm like... I stayed out in the cold. I got to GameStop at like fucking 5 in the morning. <laughs> and I couldn't pre-order this thing. I'm like, I was the first person in the store... It was fucking cold as balls. I called off work so that I could go in. <laughs> well, no, I called off work. Actually, that was a different time. That was for the Super Nintendo thing, which also GameStop ran out of. That was that was annoying too because they uh, at least they that, made more. Yeah, that one I is one of the legitimate ones I think, where it's like. Uh, I'm not sure with the original Nintendo Classic that it was as legit because they could have just made more of those, but their excuse was that, oh, we didn't expect the demand. And I'm like, how did you not expect the demand? You're an idiot. But okay, maybe. And then eventually they did make it right by just producing, you know, going in and having it a regular thing instead of just the, you know, because it, it seems like they were coming off, oh yeah, we were going to do this as a one-off for one year. And just, you know, sell what we did. And they did. And it wasn't nearly enough. And so... So they decided to pass up the money-making opportunities? I guess. Well... Sometimes it, I don't understand yeah. their decision-making process. Yeah. Eventually they, you know, obviously now you can just go to any fucking store and buy a Nintendo or Super Nintendo Classic. 
Okay. Uh, so, you know, they, they did right by that one, and, and now they have just enough stock of them that you can readily get one without paying scalper prices or some shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anywho, shall we go on to our video game topic? We forgot to rate our beers. Uh, Are you feeling a rating on that one yet? I think I'd... Hmm. I, I was originally, like, very limited on it, but I think at this point I settled into, like, a comfortable 13. All right. I like it all right. Yeah. Not too bad. It's a real easy, sessionable beer. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you could just sit there and drink that for forever. I can picture drinking a six-pack of these, and that's saying something for me. Yeah, you don't drink a six-pack of much. No. Uh, you're skinny. <laughs> <laughs> drink your beer. Put some meat on them bones. That's how that works, right? Just fill my guts up. Yep. Get a beer gut. Mm-hmm. Look like Dale Gribble. Nice. You you actually kind of would. <laughs> <laughs> like shave your beard and and then yeah get some slightly more reflective glasses and, and uh, have and a John cap. Redcorn uh, fuck your wife yeah yep it's that tree oh huh. sorry <laughs> that was me <laughs> oh damn you <laughs> anyway Okay, so uh, we told you we were going to come back to it with our, you know, accidental foreshadowing. Uh, so what makes a game worth $60 is the question. I feel like that's been coming up a pretty good amount, especially since the Switch launched, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of Switch ports from other consoles, and people are like, oh, it's not really worth 60 bucks. it's an old game. And I'm like... You know, in some cases, maybe that's a good argument, and in other cases, I don't think it is. You know, I think it's really situational, and I think it really depends on the player's taste particularly, too. I feel like this entire thing is very subjective, and I feel like everybody needs to calm down and just not be a dick about it. And that's basically the point I think we're going to achieve in the next, you know, discussion. Yeah, but let's... uh... But, but uh, I'm like, this is an economics question, kind of. Yeah. And it's basically lots of people are like, I don't want to pay $60 for this versus game studios that are like, you, we need to raise the price of games or keep inserting DLC in games or else my children will starve. Yeah, because uh, that's a legitimate issue because uh, they have to sell at some price. You know, the fact that they can still sell games at 60 bucks and make a profit is actually a little bit miraculous yeah because like they've been selling games at the 50 60 dollar price range for like a while now it you know it steadily increased over time until it just kind of didn't yeah it, it hit it kind of evened out right at that 60 dollar mark and that's just how much games are for home consoles now uh and the fact that it hasn't had any increase even over the last couple of console generations is like that's kind of crazy. It's unheard of in this kind of thing. Cause like you think about like smartphones since they came out, uh, since smartphones became a thing, let's just say that roughly 2012 ish was when they really started becoming popular and like readily available with the iPhone. It was right around 2012, something around there. Yeah, something like that. Um, 2012, 20, 2008, so something like that. In that time, you know, smartphones were coming out. 
often for 200 to $400. And now the newest model smartphones are coming out 1000 to $1,500. Yeah. That is how much inflation there has been on smartphones. In the same time, video games are still 60 bucks. So, so the, the money to the company has to come from somewhere else, which a lot has been through DLC, like you were saying. That's, you know, it's a different marketing way of marketing. But to some extent, you know, that's a double-edged sword because then everybody's like, oh, you're piecemealing out the game. You're not giving us the whole game for 60 bucks, even though they, they're, like, they're legitimately taking, you know, games are also a lot more complicated. They're taking a lot longer to make, you know, that game that, you know, doesn't include the DLC than they were to make a game that was whole 10 years ago. And whole in air quotes. I think I'm going to be saying something that's pretty obvious, mm-hmm. probably to you, probably to a lot of people who listen to this, but might not be less obvious, is that games are usually uh, not very profitable. Yeah. It's like something like 10% of games end up turning a profit. Mm-hmm. Is what I remember from several years ago, half remember from several years ago. Yeah, that's a statistic I would believe. I don't know the exact numbers to back it up, but uh, you know, this is this is a big issue, especially when you're talking to game companies now that are like uh, Bethesda, as an example, did not put out a physical version of Wolfenstein: Youngblood for Nintendo Switch, strictly because the Switch cartridge that they would need to put it on would eat up literally their entire profit margin. Because they're selling that game at a $40 value instead of a $60 value. Because it's basically based on the Wolfenstein 2 engine. It's just a new adventure featuring new protagonists, new story, new levels. Okay, so it, it you know, we've seen DLC like that for 40 bucks. You know, um, Xenoblade Chronicles 2, uh, Torna Golden Country something. I forget what the DLC is called for Xenoblade Chronicles 2. But uh, same kind of concept. You know, it's taking the game engine, using new characters, new storyline. It fits into the original story, but that one was sold as DLC for 40 bucks. Uh, and nobody complained that there wasn't a physical version because it was DLC. <laughs> uh, but but this is this is again, you know, that's that's how tight they are that they can't make a physical version because the 10 bucks or whatever it takes to be a switch cartridge is too much. I don't know if it's exactly ten bucks, but it's, I mean, it's, for me, I just yeah, it would just be like put out a version that's ten dollars more mm-hmm. or fifteen dollars more, right? Yeah, Recoup but your costs, you know, then but, everybody would be like all complaining about oh, more expensive on Switch, how come? You know, it, it's, it's a double edged sword again. You know, I feel like there's no good way to win from the corporations aspect at that point. Yeah, it's it's kind of dumb that people. It, it's kind of dumb that people would want it to be. Uh, would get annoyed that with the pure digital version, mm. with the pure, with the physical version being more expensive. Yeah. Than the digital version. Yeah, that was actually kind of a funny thing with uh, Twilight Princess HD because um, the physical version when that released, you could only get it in the bundle pack with the Wolf Link amiibo, and it was still only sixty bucks. But it comes with the game and the amiibo. Uh, and the digital version of the game was, I think, like 50 bucks instead, because it doesn't come with the Amiibo. And that raised a whole bunch of... 
people like, oh man, I want a physical version, but I don't want a amiibo. I want I want to pay fifty bucks. Come on. It's all sorts of weird shit like that. And then the digital version too. Also, people were complaining because there was a you know the amiibo unlocked a secret dungeon and. It's, so it's, 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 there, there was a lot of other complaining happening about Twilight Princess. Bizarre HD. to me when I'm like, do people not know how things are made? Do they not understand that to produce a physical thing that requires more money than to produce that thing digitally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I don't know how much it costs to produce Amiibo, but they're not probably you know nothing. But it, I feel like it's a fairly simple thing to understand. An amiibo costs more than no amiibo, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or a cartridge costs more than no cartridge. Yeah. So that's kind of an issue. Uh, so, anyways, back to the main topic a little bit. Um, uh, kind of just let's talk about uh, ports to another system. And uh, remakes and that sort of thing. Because uh, okay. recently it's come up again. The reason I actually put this topic on uh, was because I think last week or two weeks ago I was talking to somebody about the Link's Awakening remake. And they said it's a remake. It shouldn't be worth 60 bucks. Yeah, but it's a remake that required all of the technical feats necessary to make a remake. It's got... It's not got like... It's not a straight port. It's got a 3D link. It's got 3D world. It's yeah, in full color. That, that was kind of my argument for it was um, this is not just like like Ocarina of Time 3D, uh, Grezzo, the same studio that made uh, Link's Awakening remake, did Ocarina of Time 3D. And from that, they took all of the base assets of the original game, retextured them, uh, cleaned up stuff, added detail, all that sort of stuff, you know, smoothed the interface out a little bit to make it work better on 3DS, and there you go. Uh, that was a game that was willing, you know, able to be sold for 40 bucks, which also 40 bucks was the regular price for 3DS games, because, you know, they're not as uh, intensive graphically and stuff. So yeah. it's just like, okay, takes less work to make a 3ds game, justify it at 60 bucks. That's another conversation we could have for another time. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that alone, but that's, uh, now this one is completely different because with this one, they took literally nothing from the original game. The entirety of the remake was made from the ground up. Every sprite, every character model, everything that they did was made from scratch. So, in short, these people are stupid for complaining that they're having to pay a new game price because they're paying effectively for the effort required to make a new game. Yeah, because it, it literally is, you know, as much effort to make this as, say, um, you know, any other game that fully runs at 1080p at 60 fps yeah uh we'll ignore the frame drop issue but <laughs> uh you know it, it this is a a really good looking game uh you know the graphic style has been praised pretty much unanimously by everybody that's played it uh you know it's got fully orchestrated tracks that takes money you know the fact that they did all this for the a remake you know, 
I think is great because it you know it was one of my favorite Zelda games, and I think after playing this, uh, I don't care that it's a remake. It's absolutely worth sixty bucks because the sixty bucks worth of time and you know attention to detail went into it. Uh, sixty bucks per person relative you know you know what i mean yeah a lot more than 60 dollars was spent to make this you know yeah and it's funny is, is that i'm like what were what what did games cost when we were like say five or six years old 50 dollars um probably something like that because yeah i don't know i didn't like actually buy any myself because i was five or six years old but uh and yeah, now no, they were they were still up there because uh, original NES games I feel like were uh, very fluctuant in price. Also, was one of the things they didn't have a standard price uh, at the time. Yeah, but today they cost something like sixty dollars. About twenty years late, later, and. That's nowhere near enough to keep up with inflation, let alone increased cost of development. Right, yeah, because they've cost right around that price since the, you know, Nintendo 64 era. Yeah. Nintendo 64 games came out. They were usually around 60, 50, 60 bucks. Um, so that's uh, kind of where I am on that. Uh, so what do you think about, um, like, uh, ports of older games? Because there was a lot of debate about this also when Skyrim came out and Skyrim uh, I think is a game that might have I, I think they could have taken a price cut on that but again that might would have probably put Skyrim as a digital only game because uh, at that point Skyrim was like seven years old or something I I would say that in as many editions as Skyrim itself has come out in I would not pay $60 for yet another copy of Skyrim Right. But that's also... We, ports are... It also depends to me... And, and this is where you run into the trouble, is the difference between how much a thing costs to produce versus how much a consumer is willing to pay for it. To me, uh, so porting games, while nowhere near as technically intense as you know making a new game, mm -hmm. uh, porting compli reasonably complicated games can still... Be, can still carry a decent amount of expense on its own. Yeah. Um, but I personally am not willing to pay $60 or even $40 for Skyrim on the Switch. I might be willing to pay $20, $15. Right, yeah. Um, but that's partially because you've already played Skyrim, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a thing that goes into it, because... Uh, I played Skyrim back on Xbox 360, and I still got it. Partially, I got it, actually, because at the time, it was the first big third-party game, really, or one of the big, first big third-party games to come out for Switch, and I really wanted third parties to come back to Nintendo, so I'm like, yeah, I'll show my support. I'm going to get this, and I'm going to get L.A. Noir, which, actually, I forgot to get, and I never got that. So I didn't really feel like terribly put off by paying 60 bucks for Skyrim again because I was kind of getting a new experience too because also the Switch version came with all the DLC. So that was like a little better. 
Okay, that makes sense. Um, Because I hadn't played any of the DLC, because I got it when it came out on 360, and that was it. I played it, like, for a while, had one character, never came back to it. Uh, and, and plus, they added some stuff. It, not, not, like, a lot of stuff, but they added some Switch-exclusive stuff, like you can find the Master Sword and Junk. You know what I'm motion controls. now remembering is when they tried to add paid mods to Skyrim. Mm-hmm. And that went over like a lead balloon. I would imagine. Uh, and the prediction was that they were going to try and do that again at some point in the future in a way that would piss less people off. But we still haven't seen that, so I'm waiting to s- mm-hmm. I'm waiting for them to unveil that, I guess. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about, like last generation wii u ports about last generation wii u ports i don't have a good sense of how technically intense those are porting over to the switch uh i would generally as a consumer having no idea about the technical uh performance of it i would be willing to pay a reduced price for them but not that greatly like 40 dollars instead of 60 dollars that's what a lot of people kind of generally seem to say when because Basically, everything that's been ported has been the same price it came out on. the. So, Captain Toad Treasure Tracker came out for 40 but I think that game might have come out for 40 on Wii U as well. I don't remember. Uh, it came out for 40 on 3DS. Um, and so, that, 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 that one's a weird case. But pretty much all the rest, like Super Mario U uh, came out for 60 Um Let's see. Uh, trying to think of what else. Uh, there's been a lot of them. Uh, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze came out for sixty, uh, and so it's it's usually when they've been porting these Wii U games, it's been that sixty dollar price range. Um, but to an extent, I can almost defend that as well because most of these games didn't make. A lot of profit, if any, on Wii U, because the Wii U undersold, like, terribly. It makes, yeah. So kind of giving them a second chance at life to actually have any sales at all. I understand the kind of, like, the business side impulse of pricing. It's it's a full AAA game, and you can't Mm -hmm. even claim that the Wii U was all that much less powerful than the Switch. Yeah. Um... So $60 seems like it would be an appropriate amount to recoup your losses, but then you got to deal with uh, the customer, what the customer is willing to pay on that. Yeah, although the customers have complained a lot, but they've also proven again and again that they're willing to pay this because uh, um, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze and Super Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, I believe, both have outsold the Wii U versions on the Switch. Which, yeah, I guess that's not... Sup- I guess what you could do is compare kind of the ratio of how many people own a Switch versus how many people bought mm-hmm. this on the Switch yeah. versus how many people own a Wii U versus how many mm-hmm. people bought this on the Wii U. Yeah, and because th- that's one of the things. Because I had a Wii U. I, I still have a Wii U. But um, I didn't get some of the games that came out for it. I never got um, Mario Kart 8. I never got Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze uh, until they were on Switch. So to me, it was also basically like having a new game anyway. 
even though it was a game that had been out for a few years on another system, mm-hmm. it's like, to me, it's still a new game. And I feel like to almost all of the people that bought these games, it was a new game to them. So that's kind of, you know, I feel like also giving it a second chance at that is a good thing because a lot of these games almost were doomed to fail just because they were Wii U exclusive. So, so back to our, back to the question, I guess. You, you, not that you were off topic. Right. It's just, there's, a, I guess there's several answers for the $60 thing. Which Yeah. But probably the most important one is what people are willing to pay from for businesses. Yeah. And that's another kind of thing that uh, is also comes up with Nintendo a lot is uh, like people will complain that Nintendo games are $60 for like forever until eventually maybe they'll get a price drop like really late in the console's life or something. Because um, I remember like shortly before we came out a lot of good games went on sale for like 20 bucks on gamecube and stuff um and you know they have the whole nintendo selects thing which are usually older games that they'll reduce price for um they did that a lot on the 3ds and some on the wii u i think uh so they do reduce price sometimes but it's not like playstation where like it releases at 60 and then it's 40 dollars in six months and then a year later, it's $20, you know, is almost like the cyclical way that PlayStation games are priced now. They, they like have a price drop schedule almost in a lot of them, uh, which is why you can go out now and you can buy Final Fantasy 15 for like, you know, 10 bucks used, 20 bucks new. Uh, you can Even buy. Though I won't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. Uh, I got for actually on a PlayStation Network sale for like seven dollars with all the DLC, you know, stuff like that. And Nintendo strictly, pretty much, always just keeps their stuff right at sixty. And people are willing to pay sixty. Yeah, that, that's one of the things. So maybe people, there's a psychological like, thing. Yeah, because people there. argue, oh, Nintendo is a bunch of, you know, they're ripping us off, but charging 60 bucks when other game companies don't but it's like nintendo was also smart because they're charging you 60 dollars when other game companies could because i feel like a lot of these game companies like i feel like spider-man is a good example of a ps4 game that i think could just remain at 60 forever and people would buy it uh god of war uh, horizon zero dawn i think all of those are really good games that everybody unanimously who has played them pretty much loves them, and I think they would continue to sell. So uh, what I think would happen is that uh, people who buy PS4 games are used to the cycle of sales. They're used to games becoming cheaper over time. Yeah. Um, so... It might have a different effect mm-hmm. than it does with Nintendo, who is pretty consistent about keeping their games at the same price. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, like, and I, again, I don't have a PS4, but I know that if Steam mm-hmm. decided to stop mapping sales, there's just a lot of games I wouldn't buy because they'd never go on sale. Right. Um, 
Nintendo also, I think, has a weird spot in the market because so many of their games are, like, icons now. Yeah. Like, you can sell a Zelda game for $60 forever, and I, I, I think almost nobody will ever complain about it because it's Zelda. Uh, or it's Mario, or it's Donkey Kong. You know, they have uh, game franchises that have been around longer than a lot of game companies. Yeah, and even even some old franchises that are not Nintendo can't get away with that. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Final Fantasy. Yeah, granted, like I said, they Final have... Fantasy Fifteen is now, you know, you can get the complete edition. 20 yeah. bucks, it's got all the DLC. Uh, you know, and I've, I've seen that, like, I think the GameStop used price is like 10 or 12 bucks. So, you know, Nintendo is weird like that. Somehow they've managed to luck out in having all of the most iconic, you know, games of all time. Um, not all of them, obviously, but, you know, a, a large, a larger chunk of the most iconic games of all time are Nintendo than any other company. I feel like that is an accurate statement. We might be biased. A little bit. I mean, we are on a podcast called Drink to the Past. Right. But uh, I, I would I would tend to agree with you. Yeah. So if you disagree, then leave a comment on Podbean or... And we'll tell you why you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> we can start a flame war yeah. or something. I haven't started one of those in years. <laughs> I started one last week. Oh. <laughs> so uh, what do you think about playtime? Does that equate to a dollar value because one of the big things i've seen about this uh particularly again with link's awakening is oh link's awakening i'm seeing people beat in 10 to 15 hours that's not worth 60 bucks and i've seen people beat breath of the wild in like 30 minutes who cares right it's although you, there's an argument that you can get more playtime out of a game it's it's about how good the game is versus how and what you can get out of it versus how long the game is. Yeah, because that's... Uh, I feel like that's a thing, because a lot of 100-hour games I've played have not been as engaging as Link's Awakening. Remake or original. Uh, you know, I would say Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was great. Played it. I beat it after 120 hours. Um, and... I would say that overall, over the course of 120 hours, it was not as engaging as one minute of Link's Awakening. Wow. It was a great wow. game, but Link's Awakening is that much better, uh, in my opinion. You know, this, this is also, again, one of those biased things where, you know, Link's Awakening is the first Zelda game I ever played and, you know, in my top five games of all time. But... You know, I feel like that's just one of those things that I would pay $60 for this because it's, you know, it's a really high-quality experience in every possible way, except for total playtime. But again, you know, also I, you know, don't necessarily go as fast as other players. I, I you know, averages are weird, too, because it's like, oh, average player takes this. And sometimes I'll have games where I take longer than average, and sometimes I'll have games that I take shorter than average, Like, too. who's the average player? Because I am sure that I have spent at least 100 hours in the original, and I've only beaten it, like, twice or three times. Uh, I do not think I could beat the game in nine hours if I tried, especially not on the original. 
partially just because I really get lost easily in the overworld in the original. Yeah, it's kind of labyrinth-like. Yeah, and a lot of kind of areas sort of look the same because they're black and white and the tree sprites are all identical. But I'm thinking, it's hard to tell where exactly you are sometimes. I'm thinking I probably wouldn't pay $60 for a game that took an hour to get through unless that hour was like, you know, like, gave me a blowjob or something. Right. Wow, a whole hour blowjob. Could you last through that? No. <laughs> well, let's just be honest let's here. Be honest. <laughs> awesome. Um... So would you pay 60 bucks for a 10-hour game? Uh, depends on how good it was, but I might. Right. And do you think you would feel more justified paying 60 bucks for a 100-hour game? Uh, I think so. If it was Possibly. half as good it, for 100 hours, would that make it better than one of the best games of all time for 10? No. And... You gotta. I feel like it because this is this really is subjective. You gotta evaluate games qualitatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably. I'd probably pick get both games, but um, pl- playtime matters somewhat, but it doesn't matter to the degree that everybody claims it does. It's like if a game mm. costs $15 and has 10 hours of playtime, but is amazing for those 10 hours of playtime, it's definitely worth the money. But mm. if a game is like filled to the brim of 200, with 200 hours of just like the same fucking thing, then I don't want to buy that. Like I wouldn't... World of Warcraft? Well, yeah. 200 hours of... You know, of grind, grinding until you get to the end game. Well, um, let's see. I'm thinking of a lot of the like bad sandbox games that are. World of Warcraft was even worse about that though, because yeah. it was like sixty dollars and a subscription. Fuck, I'd rather play RuneScape. Wow, if I gotta waste my time, at least <laughs> then I can feel my soul getting sucked out of me. <laughs> yeah, I, I never got into RuneScape. I tried because I had a buddy that played, and I started a guy and like I wandered into a, a PvP area apparently I didn't you know it, it didn't I feel like the tutorial did not accurately tell you where PvP areas were and how they worked and stuff and just like I kept getting killed by high level players and they stole all my shit I was like what the fuck kind of dumbass game is this you just run around and get killed by high level players the moment you're trying to quest and you know and, and also, I, I'm pretty sure I had a quest to go there is also one of my issues. <laughs> it's like, you have a quest to go to this PvP area where you are inevitably going to get ganked for all of your two gold worth of stuff that this guy is gaining literally nothing from other than the satisfaction of being higher level than you. <laughs> I killed a noob. Look how big my dick is. How big my dick is. How big my dick is. Is your... Big dig? My big is dig enough. Is it the diggiest? The diggiest in all the land? You can dig some, Doug. That was a 17, 16. 
16 out of 17. Oh, you read it. This is a good fucking beer. Yeah. We kept, we kept forgetting that also. Anyways, uh, is there anything else you want to speak about? The $60 game topic. Well, there's how much it's... <clears throat> if you're running a business and you want to know what to price your game at, uh, the best you can do is shitloads of market research and not listening to two drunken idiots on a podcast ramble about... Uh, what we think games should be worth. Yeah, and if you're a fan who argues about what games are worth, don't be a dick about it and let people enjoy shit. Yeah, if you're a consumer, understand that a lot goes into those games and you're getting them for way cheaper than uh, they should be priced based on how much it actually costs to make them. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, our table topic for the day is... Sandboxes, plot roads, and just plain old railroads. Thank you. I was the theme song. I I guess you were. Apparently we have a table topic theme song now. So... I just decided. So I think we've already come out on the fuck railroads train. Uh, largely, um, you know, it... It can be a useful tool occasionally, but you can't be a dick about it, and I feel like you should try to avoid being obvious about it, too. But, like, I don't know. Uh, that's that's a hard thing, too, because it's like, unlike, usually when you're railroading, it's obvious. Yeah. Players will be like, oh, I'm going to try and do this other thing. Most of the time, it's just players are being polite, and they'll be like, okay, I guess we'll get in the, we'll get in the gondola for now. Right. I'm getting the, uh, but there is usefulness for saying, okay, you guys are on this adventure for the first session, and then after this, you can do whatever you want. And it's mm-hmm. just a good way of getting people together. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, uh, have you ever done much sandboxiness in your campaigns? Yes. Uh, that's kind of my favorite style of game these days, mm-hmm. and. It's uh, involves kind of, and a lot of the secret of uh, running those is just having a good procedure for running a sandbox. Yeah. Um, so what what kind of things do you do to keep your sandbox flowing well? So f- for me these days, uh, I do one of the oldest things in the world is I got is the hex crawl, mm-hmm. where you have a map of this many hexes. You say like. Five by five hexes, or ten by ten hexes, and then you say here all here's all the stuff in these locations. Explore in any direction you want, and then if players wander off the map, or they say we want to go to this place, you say okay, and then you prepare more content in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also keep it fresh by having like a dynamic table of I'm just going to roll on this table when they explore a hex, and the next hex they explore. Um, Here's the entrance to this dungeon here. Mm-hmm. That comes up on this table. And this... So... A lot of this requires having... Um, of course you need good improvisation skills. Yeah. And also... A big enough set of... Just shit that you can throw at your players. Yeah, it comes in handy. Play- um... So one of the things that I've kind of done is sort of similar to your hex crawl, but I, I don't usually segment it in hexes. I kind of just go like, okay, so, you know, I, I set up the geography of the area, and I'm like, okay, there's forests here, there's mountains here, and based on where you're going, 
I kind of, you know, set up the adventure there somehow. And usually I put in some sort of plot hook for, you know, what's going on in that area and why you should care about it. Uh, but then, you know, if you don't take the plot hook, then, you, you know, I, yeah. I can work with that. Uh, and so what I do also is then basically, usually when I'm running a game, I can have a vague idea of the obvious things the players might do. And on a large scale thing like this, like where they will go geographically, I feel like it is a lot easier to just kind of drop hints of this is kind of where I think you should go. And, you know, players obviously, they will take the hint sometimes and sometimes they won't. Uh, and sometimes they'll see the hint and they'll be like, no, that doesn't sound like fun. I'm going to go fucking jump in a volcano or some yeah. shit. But so I'll kind of have all these things in mind. And I'll, usually when I'm running a campaign like this, I can guess what area of the world they're going to go into next a lot of the time and so i can prepare content for that area or areas around there that's something i'm also a fan of just saying at the end of the session where do you guys want to go next so i can prepare stuff for where you want to go yeah that's a, a good idea that i use too sometimes is that kind of cliffhanger where it's like all right you've done all this what are you gonna do next oh break for session oh yeah uh, so I've I've definitely <laughs> kind of done that as well. Um, and then, you know, for the odd times that they... It, it's it's kind of funny, too, also, because I, I keep all my notes, even if they don't go to where I think they will. Uh, and then the next time they go there, I'm like, oh, yeah, I prepared a thing for that. So I have it already. Because, uh, you know, eventually they loop back around themselves within a world most of the time if it's a somewhat constrained world. Yeah. Uh, as long as it's not too huge. And that's kind of the nice thing about running a sandbox is eventually it does take on a life of its own and you get you ha need to do less and less preparation. Mm -hmm. And just because things kind of develop organically. Yeah. Uh, like, let's see. The... Uh, in your Ragnarok game, where we started from the west side of the map. Actually, no, that wasn't the west side. That was... Uh, it was the east... Kind of the northeast end. Yeah, kind of the northeast end, and then went all the way to the south end of the map. Then kind of doubled back around. Yeah. You went straight south for a while through a forest, then went uh, west across some plains that you didn't really explore too much until you got to the... Uh, village you would head that out into in the first place uh so that that was also kind of a cheeky thing that i d sort of did uh because you had arbitrarily decided that your quest was to find your beloved and i rolled randomly to see where she was and then i was like all right now i know where they're gonna go for like the next 12 sessions <laughs> so that that worked out for me. Uh, so, uh, although again, you didn't take the exact route that I had planned. So now I have like a few different towns planned out that eventually I'm sure you'll circle back to. And yeah. And then when you when the players don't do exactly what I you know or go completely off the rails, and I'm like, okay, what do now? I actually went to the trouble of creating a D100 table of random encounters, and it comes in handy. Uh, one of the only things that one. I think I 
might amend for that is uh, I have a few of them that are like, here's a really brief plot hook, uh, roll up a mini dungeon, and the idea would be to like create a random dungeon on the fly. But I feel like that would take forever. Yeah, be kind creating of random dungeons on the fly is not as easy as I had anticipated. So I think I'm going to take out some of those or actually go and create the mini dungeon and supply it in the table and with, that's, the, with the D100 table. That's also kind of why I'm as big a fan of good, usable dungeons mm-hmm. that you can just pick up is because the players go to some place and you're like, oh, they're is a dungeon here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's this dungeon. Mm-hmm. I'm going to run off this now. Yeah. I was thinking of just making a D100 table of dungeons and then writing up the entire dungeon for each one of various sizes. But that would take a long-ass time. You should post that on your Twitter and ask people to provide you dungeons. That is, that is not a bad idea. If you would like to provide a dungeon for us to use on Drink to the Past, you can tweet at me at spamomanospam or leave a comment below. Because Podbean has comments. We have never gotten a comment. Not once. Not once. Not even a singular time. Yep. I've occasionally got people, like, responding to some of our topics on Twitter, but never a Podbean comment. So. Although I myself have never commented on podcasts on Podbean either. You'd probably just tweet at them. I do. Yeah. So, uh... Sometimes Mention us on Twitter and don't comment on Podbean because that's dumb. Who checks those? Uh, uh, I mean, I don't even actually know if Podbean would give me a notification if I did. Yeah. Because I haven't had one. It's not exactly a good platform for that. Yeah. I Like, I have no idea how the comment section even works. Does it work? I don't know. We've well, never left a comment. Right, yeah. I, no I kind of had to look at it for a while because I had seen the comment section on other podcasts before I we created ours. And then, like, I was tooling around with it just to see how I check comments. And it took me a little while to figure out even how to check comments. Hmm. I was like, this is kind of awkward. Uh, so I'm probably not going to check them very much. Like, maybe we've had several comments in the last few episodes, but probably not. But I think Ragnarok's a good example of what I'd call a sandbox with a plot. Yeah. a time limit. Mm. Uh, Where it's... Yeah, it is a sandbox. You can do... You can play around in the sandbox. You can do whatever in the sandbox. But there's a certain point where the game will come to an end. And everything will come tumbling down on your heads, and it's up to you to be prepared for it. Yeah. Uh, so, for obviously the listeners probably aren't as familiar with my campaign. Basically, I kind of created this campaign off of the idea of what if some player characters were like in a pub, and then two gods were battling far overhead and like raining ice and fire upon their, you know, pub. And they had to deal with that on a mortal level. Uh, and then I, you know, sort of ran with that idea and created a lot of lore behind the Pantheon, uh, in this world and, you know, their various allegiances with each other and, uh, kind of just made a world where, like, the gods are the government too. So each country is ruled over by one of the gods and then just let the players kind of loose. And eventually I was like, yep, and the gods are going to war because reasons. 
And oddly enough, I don't think any of the players really fully comprehend the reason why the gods have gone to war, other than the fact that Dan one time, you know, told one of the gods to go invade another god's country. Yeah, that seems like a bad idea. Yeah, but you Under never... false pretenses, too. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, but you've never undercovered exactly how the, uh, you know, exactly what was going on behind that plot in the first place, so... It's kind of interesting uh, little little thing there, and but we've had a fair amount of fun with it because you've met a lot of the gods, you've killed some of the gods, you've been killed by some of the gods. Yeah, don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God of Water has your divine rank now. Damn it! I earned that divine rank by kill stealing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think there's something to be said for a sandbox without plot, where it's just based on the eternal play thing. But most groups, uh, I guess most campaigns I've played in, don't really last that long. Mm -hmm. So it helps to have some sort of pressing thing going on. Mm -hmm. um, if you do have a group that meets regularly for years on end and is reasonably focused, then you can do that. You can have a game where it's just a sandbox and things happen in it and any story that comes out of it just kind of developed organically emerged from whatever the players did mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's pretty rare these days yeah uh, yeah I don't know because like we've been playing with the same group for a long ass time and like, I've tried to play D&D &D with other people, and it, it, it just doesn't always work. So it's one of those things where I guess, like, if you're in a, that kind of group, then, you know, stick with it. Yeah. Um, I think what can separate... So there is such a thing as a bad sandbox, and that's the sandbox where the players start, they set off, and then they have no idea what they can do next. They have no set of options to pick from. They have no idea what... They, they don't have, like, a list of plot hooks they can look at and say, okay, this looks interesting, let's do this this session. So how do you handle that? How do you, div you know, dole out plot hooks? Well, sometimes I say, here's the hex map. Go, if you explore in any direction, there will be something to do there. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I say, there are these people in the bar that you can talk to or you know that the baron's been having this trouble over this hill here and you know that a hellmouth has opened up in this farmer's field and his son crawled in huh. uh hey, dumbass sometimes it helps to i and this is why having um kind of a linear first session even when the rest of the game opens up later is a big help mm -hmm. is if everyone's trying to break out of prison together and get away from, say, uh, their execution that'll happen the next day, uh, and they have to head in a random direction to do it, it just kind of spawns uh, some... Na it kind of helps get them started and figure out what their goals are pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And eventually... <clears throat> What's nice, what can happen is when a player is like, all right, this is my goal for what I'm doing, is you don't have to <coughs> do anything in the way of hooks because they are already in the middle of doing something. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <coughs> cool. Um, do you have anything else to say on the uh, 
Um, sandbox kind of topic. I think we've mostly gone over just our general tips for what we do and what works for us. Yeah. Um, is there any other thoughts? Preparing a sandbox. I, I will say that preparing a sandbox can be a lot of work, but you don't need to prepare it all up front. Yeah. You need to prepare, like, what will immediately happen wherever the players go, and then as they're going, you can prepare more content just around them. Yeah. You know, wherever they might go as well. So a good set of random tables and a good mind for improvisation and then being willing to structure it out a bit more behind the scenes mm-hmm. and prepare in front of where you think they're going to go or where they say they're going to go. Um, that'll help a lot. Mm-hmm. I can also show... We'll be showing you a map. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were going to show me porn. Oh. What? what, what? You, you know where porn is. I do. You have a you have a porn machine. I have lots of porn machines. You have lots of porn machines. You ever watch porn on your 3DS? I have not ever done that. Huh. You ever watch porn on your Wii U? There's no actual browser that you can... I mean, there's technically a browser on the Switch, but it's not an accessible, like, browser browser. So you, you can't really watch porn on your... Uh, you can kind of get backdoored into Facebook, and then if somebody's posted porn, porn on Facebook and hasn't been taken down yet, you could watch porn there, I guess. So that's one way to watch porn on your Switch. I suppose you... Yeah, I suppose you could do all that. Mm-hmm. I am looking through the thing, and I am having a hard time finding it. Mm-hmm. That's bizarre. Yeah. I should not be having any trouble finding it. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You have to drink because you're having trouble finding it. Mm-hmm. I'll drink to that. Mm-hmm. Beer. Beer. God, this is Beer. good. Beer. It's like roasty and portery. Like, a lot of malt uh, sweetness, like, is there, but not overpoweringly sweet. It's hmm. just a really good beer. I've always liked the Graham Cracker Porter. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a limited release. I don't know if they do it all the time, but they did it for the summer one year. It was was uh, Marshmallow Chocolate Graham Cracker Porter. That was good. <laughs> it was like drinking a s'more. So if you look at this little map here... Oh my god. It's a bunch of little roads leading between towns. Mm-hmm. And the way I had this set up was their goal was in this direction, up to up to the northeast, and there was a bunch of roads leading from the towns, and I made sure that there was always at least some sort of option for roads leading between towns, because following the roads is the safest thing to do, generally right. speaking. Yeah. And then I gave a distance, I gave them a time limit, and I said, all right, green roads are safe, yellow roads are risky, and red roads are really dangerous. Hmm. And That's then interesting, I, just have branching paths, and then they can, you know, like, oh, we've, uh, you know, been kicking the asses of stuff lately, let's go for a red, or, you know, we've been, you know, beat up too much, let's go for a green so we can have a breather session. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of interesting little idea there. Uh, I like that. I might steal that. 
eventually. That would be... I, I be, It's kind of a point crawl, but it's also... They could at any time venture off the road and see what was off the road, and that would be more dangerous than being on the road. But, yeah. But... It'd be like... Past red. Double black diamond. Double black diamond. Yeah. You just walk off and the grass eats you. Oh, God! <laughs> the grass has big pointy teeth. Why does the grass have teeth? Why don't you? I have teeth. Oh, fuck. You do. You Where must you? be the grass. I, I'm not grass. That's not exactly grass. what grass would say. Are, are, are you sure? Have you talked to grass recently? No, it's been a while. Okay. We're kind of fighting. I mean, you guys should make up. Life's too short, man. Okay. Yeah. I'll make up with the grass. Anyways, uh, anything more on that subject? Lots of, lots more, but probably for another podcast. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, sandboxes will come up again, uh, you know, to some extent, because we like sandboxes. Sandboxes are great. Yeah. Did we ever do a sandbox video game topic? I don't I think th- so. thought about it. And then I never never got around to it. So maybe we'll do that another week. Sandboxes and video games. Anyways, uh, Chris brings a, a thing. thing. Bow, bow, bow. Magical Murder Mansion. A challenging funhouse dungeon by Skirples. Skirples. Skirplay. Uh, coin sand scrolls. Blogspot.com. Oh, Canadians. I was a Canadian once. Well, I mean, you got rejected by Canada. That's kind of the same. All right, it's got an introduction. It must be a great book. This module is for experienced GMs with experienced players, GMs who want to learn about lateral thinking and unusual trap design, experienced GMs with experienced players but who are new to OSR-style content, and would like a challenge? As a completely new GM, you can still use this dungeon and learn a lot from it, but it will test your skills and possibly irritate your players. I would recommend trying Tomb of the Serpent Kings first. And that's one I didn't bring, but Uh I have that sitting on my shelf. All right, maybe that'll come up later. Chris brings a lot of things. So this is basically one of those big classic funhouse dungeons, but it's a well-designed big classic funhouse dungeon. Mm Mm-hmm. It's got lots of fun things, like an elevator that teleports, I want to say, thousands of feet up in the air, or thousands of feet down into the earth. Mm-hmm. And a torture chamber, and an armory, and a good chapel, good as in quotation marks, uh, monster testing, lower false workshop. It's a, it's a false workshop? Yeah, there's, of course in fun houses there's got to be like false areas where just everything's a trap. Nice. Like you go in and it's like, you're like, I'm going to miss... And it's like an alchemist lab, and you're like, I'm going to mix the blue and the green flask together. And then you mix them together, and they explode, mm. and then you smell like dog pee for the rest of your life. Neat. I always wanted to smell like dog pee. I don't know that that's an actual trap in this dungeon, but that sounds like a thing that would go in a fun house mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. Okay. So it seems to be relatively detailed in the uh, what's going on in the dungeons here. Yeah. A lot of rooms here. It's about 90 fairly rooms. Large, yeah, fairly large dungeon. It's 
coffin storage. And it's not like... Zombie kiln. It's one of those things Just where... in case you need to, you know... Yeah, uh, your zombies so they get hard. You gotta cook them. Yeah. Cook those zombies. Make them hard. Make them... Bonerific. <laughs> I'm gonna drink for that. <laughs> I'll drink that. dad saying that. <laughs> well, we love bone puns here. You know, in, in a past life, I'm pretty sure I was a member of Team Skull or something. Yeah. We're recording this and in October. Den. Yeah. So, all the fun things that you'd expect out of this. Not like, nearly as many tits as last week. No, fewer tits. Actually, no tits at all, I, I believe. That guy has a key that looks like a peanut. And oh, he himself kind of looks like a peanut. Tooth Fairy is, is an actual monster in here. And a 30-inch bookworm. And that's how you can tell it's Secretary a Kraken. Hey, kill him, fired zombie. So they do get hard. Yes. Yes. Vegemite Wrestling kill. Angel. Ooh, and a random encounter table. That is handy. And some more supplemental tables. Magical accident tables. Neat. Okay, so yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. It's a fairly concise book. But even so, the dungeon actually looks pretty big. Ooh, and it's, I like actually this in the back here. It uh, has a blank slate that you would uh, give to the players as their player character map. Yes. Uh, and then they would fill it in because it's just like it's got the basic shape of the dungeon, but uh, it's uh, not all filled in. So that that's a cool idea. I like that. Yeah. Because uh, why don't more modules do this? Yeah. Uh, it's something that I've never thought of doing exactly like that. I have made uh, players like a map where it's like. I just hide it in the dungeon somewhere, like a Zelda dungeon, and then you find the map. And I'm like, oh, here's a map. Uh, but it's it's still slightly different from the GM map. It's not as detailed. It's like, maybe it'll tell you where treasure chests are or something, or yeah. what doors are locked and stuff. But, I, you know, it still won't have all of the secrets. So, uh, yeah. Anywho. Um... I guess we're done for now. I, uh, I as guess always, so. I have been Sean Michael Patrick Thompson, the uh, fabulous co-host of Drink to the Past. If you have enjoyed this episode of Drink to the Past, you can write your congressman and tell him, hey, Drink to the Past is great. You should subscribe on Podbean. I have a congress squid. Well, write him too. It has 16 genders. Sixteen genders. I am Chris, almost no last name, Audette, but not quite. You lost uh, most of your name. <laughs> yeah, kind it's of. just the letter A now. It's just the Chris, letter A. Chris, ah. Chris, ah. Uh, <laughs> you can find some of my stuff on DriveThruRPG under the publishing name Five Cataclysms. I wrote House of Flowers and co-wrote Five Cataclysms Core Rules Beta Edition. Which is, you know, an RPG rule book. Uh, you can pick both of those up, pay what you want, give me, give me some of your money. 
Just, yeah, just give me some of your money, though. Uh, <laughs> also, my co-authors published a bunch of modules under that name, a bunch of nice dungeons that you sh- can and should pay money for. And, uh, and they're all good. I would recommend you pick up Mad Mask Spire or Descent into Madness. Or really anything. All right. You can also catch me writing articles on twoguysplayingzelda.com, which I forgot to plug. Um, so my latest piece is up now is a review of the new Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening remake, which is pretty cool. And uh, I've actually started my next piece, which will be my first fan fiction piece for the site. Whoa. Um, oh. It won't be as weird as my normal fan fiction. I've actually been having a kind of an interesting time writing this, because most of the time when I'm writing fan fiction, it's all, like, wacky bullshit. And this one I'm kind of, like, uh, trying to, you know, take a more serious tone, you know, get really behind the a little bit of the psychology of what's going on with the characters, because it's basically like an alternate ending to Link's Awakening. So, yeah. Look forward for that in the near future, if you like fanfiction. Fanfiction's always been a weird thing for me. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, because also most of the time when I uh, write fanfiction, I kind of choose my own starting point, uh, whereas this one is kind of like supposed to happen most of the way through Link's Awakening, like right before the end, uh, and then take an alternate ending path, obviously. So it's like... I'm having to write about characters that have already been established by somebody else, which that's kind of a little awkward. I feel like there's not a good way to start it. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that I'm doing an okay job, uh, but I, I don't know. It, it just There's this little weird feeling that I'm getting from kind of, you know, I, I feel like, as the writer, I have to assume that the reader is familiar with the source material, and I don't feel that every reader will always be. So that there's there's that. Can I give you some advice? Yeah. Thanks. All right. <laughs> I'm so glad for that. <laughs> yeah. And now is the part of the podcast where we, you know, keep blabbering until we find a really awkward note to end on. You know, I've never written fan fiction. Huh. I have. Not like a ton, but... Like a decent amount. Right. Like more than than I have, which is zero. Yeah. Most of my fan fictions, again, have been like weird, wacky bullshit. The only serious fan fiction I think I've ever written was actually, of all things, a Harry Potter fan fiction. And the methods of rationality. A what? It's a Harry Potter fan fiction oh. that I keep seeing that mentioned. Hmm. Is it as good as My Immortal? Well, nothing can compare to that treasure. <laughs> yeah. Although, if you haven't heard of My Immortal, it's a Harry Potter fan fiction, and you should go look it up. Like, whether you like Harry Potter or not, you will have a good time. you got to be a good writer to write something that awful. Yeah. I love it, like, just because you're never sure if the writer is seriously thinking that they're good or just trolling idiots. (laughs) And either way, I'm fine with it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, uh, the Harry Potter fan fiction I came up with actually I kind of thought was an interesting idea where it's like this uh, the the entire thing was like the internal monologue of this uh, squib detective. Who was like an horror? Oh yeah, but, uh, I he, remember you talking about this. Yeah, he, so he's like a squib, but he's an horror, so he can't use magic. But he has like a bunch of like weird magical artifacts that can do stuff. Like he's got a lens of truth, and a and a magical staff that he finds later or something. I, I so don't know. it's like I, the I, Wheel yeah. of Time video game where uh, where you play the I that one Aesodai Aesodai who just has a bunch of fucking artifacts because she's actually, like, bad at using magic. Hmm. Neat. It's weird that I drew that connection. Apparently. Yeah, I don't know. I've never read any of the books, or I didn't even know there was a video game. It wasn't good. Hmm. It was a first-person shooter. That is not what I would expect. <laughs> no, I, I was pretty surprised. <laughs> yeah. When I uh, played it, and I was basically just using wands to shoot people. Mm -hmm. It was kind of fun, actually, writing that fanfic, because I was, like, doing it in this whole, like, film noir kind of detective style. She came in with a pair of legs that said nothing but trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun if you interpret it literally. Yes. <laughs> Everything is fun if you interpret it literally. Yeah. She came with a pair of legs that said nothing but trouble. <laughs> My office was in a, for a weird night. <laughs> yep. Um... Apparently today is the one-year anniversary of the fake uh, Grinch leak for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. You remember that? The what? The, the Grinch the leak? The fake Grinch leak for Super Smash Bros. Yeah, so uh, this was a surprisingly convincing leak that um, supposedly came of somebody that had like there was for some reason there was a lot of things that tied this together that made it seem legit. That basically uh, somebody working somehow hand-in-hand -hand with Illumination on the Grinch movie and also Super Smash Brothers uh, had like a final quote-unquote, you know, of the giant roster picture in Super Smash Brothers where it's they keep updating it like every time there's a DLC fighter they put in this picture. What the uh, actual fuck? Yeah. Uh, and, but for some reason, I, for, I forget the entire context, but basically there was some reason that this whole thing was like, the, the Grinch was like, supposed to prove somehow that it was legit, because basically there was some studio or another, I don't remember all the logistics, but... There was, like, one particular studio that might have had access to both of these things at the same time. And it was, like, promotional material for the Grinch movie using a render of the Grinch that nobody had seen before. And then this Super Smash Brothers poster, too. Uh, so... It now, and now just the Whoville song is going through my head. I'm just imagining that thing in Smash Brothers. <laughs> just that playing while, like, people get launched off screen. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of funny, because, like... 
people were so torn on this because like I was looking at it and I was like, I'm always skeptical of leaks. And I was looking at the evidence people were presenting and I was like, eh, this has a vague chance of being real. That's kind of neat. And then it was proven incorrect, like with one or another of the, uh, uh, like, I think it was like Incineroar, uh, when they revealed him and he wasn't one of the and characters. he was not the, the Grinch. Yeah. <laughs> he was not in the Grinch League. And then it's like, uh-oh. What I want to see him do is, like, be like, yeah, we're including a character from a Grinch. And you all guessed it, it's the mayor of Whoville. It's not little Cindy Lou. It's Who not little Cindy. No, it's two. nobody important. It's nobody <laughs> you recognize. Mayor of Whoville has attacks mostly involving flags and bell ringing. <laughs> he was a dick in the... Uh, in the live action one. Yeah, in the Jim yeah. Carrey one. You think Jim Carrey will be better as the Grinch or Dr. Robotnik? I really want to see Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik. It's going to be it's not that It's, it's not that I'm so impressed bad, by great. it. Yeah. I, I want to see this movie. Like, he doesn't seem like Dr. Robotnik. He just seems like Jim Carrey. When <laughs> a Dr. Robotnik cost. And it's, but... <laughs> There's just, there's something beautiful about this movie. Oh, yeah, I saw also, apparently, uh, Walmart has, um, some Walmart stores have, uh, like, kid costumes for Sonic the Hedgehog based on the, uh, that movie, the, the, the new live-action movie that was delayed, which I can imagine was probably a PR thing that they were d- doing in the first place because it was going to launch in November, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, before they delayed it, I forget. Yeah, I don't remember. But, you know, it, w- it would have been right about this time. So I feel like having Halloween costumes in there would have been a pretty good PR stunt if Sonic, like, looked like um, Sonic. <laughs> and now it's just, like, an awkward kind of a train wreck that it's just like, okay, well, we already got all the licensing and patents and <laughs> went through the process... May to make well, these costumes, I guess we gotta put them on the market, and putting them on the market in February would be let's, stupid. Let's make them sell out. <laughs> let's make them think that that was a success. Right. <laughs> Everyone wear you your Sonic costume. costume. Yeah. When you run faster than light, you can only live in the darkness. Mm. <laughs> Deep. So deep. 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 Holy. 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 Stop pumping my table. Holy.